I had no idea what I was doing. I was an academic pediatrician and research scientist because I didn't want to be a business person. And all of a sudden I was sucked into developing, you know, forming a company and learning everything about that. And I remember that first meeting, he started going over raising money and stuff and angel investors. And I, and he goes, you look kind of confused. I go, what does like an angel thing have to do with anything to do with what we're trying to do? And he goes, you don't know what an angel investor is. I go, I have no idea what an angel investor is. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. On today's episode, we sit down with Dr. Barry Finette, a pediatrician turned entrepreneur working to expand healthcare access for everyone. Welcome. This is Sam Roach Gerber and Dave Bradbury, recording from the Consolidated Communications Technology Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Hi, Barry. Hi, Sam. Thanks for being here today. Welcome to the hot seat, Barry. Thank you. I'm very excited about this opportunity. Little deer in the headlamps, cut her luck. <laughs> it's a great unknown. Oh, so. I'm nervous. This is like a big one for me. We're back from hiatus. We've been snowboarding, surfing, uh, MBAing. Yes, all, all those the things. So Making ourselves useful, useful elsewhere. All right, Barry. We're going to start you out with a little ball here. Nice. Thank you. Yeah, I, it's the least I could do. Yeah. Um, what is ThinkMD, and what inspired it? That's a lowball, actually. <laughs> um, so ThinkMD is kind of a it's kind of like an amorphous blob, in a sense. It's uh, it started out, and it currently is still what's considered maybe a health technology company that looks to develop solutions to really challenging health problems globally. So a really small niche sort of thing. <laughs> Well, I mean, the idea is if you're going to do something, why do it small? Love it. I think Amorphous Blob was how Google described themselves in the early days. So I, I, you might want to check the trademarking on oh, that okay. description. Yeah. Oh, I'm honored now. And, and how did it come about? Well, um, I always had deep interest in global health and humanitarian work and uh, was able to take a sabbatical to look into those areas, um, you know, from my academic position at UVM, and went ahead and, um, because I never really wanted a real job, decided to go back and get some additional training. I got a diploma in tropical medicine and hygiene, and then I also got a diploma in international humanitarian uh, assistance. And then I decided to travel to as many geographically diverse and economically diverse areas in the world to look into different global health problems, get experience, et cetera. And uh, based on uh, over a two-year period of doing this, uh, found a problem in the world that I thought maybe we could or I could help with. And that mainly is uh, in low- and middle-income countries where there's usually one physician for every 10 to 50 to 100,000 people. Um, most people in those areas never see a doctor. And so they're dying with really very simple diseases that they wouldn't normally die in, in the U.S. or other type of high-income countries. And what was being used there is uh, unskilled workers to try to behave like doctors. Mm. And they were giving them type of educational materials to use. And it wasn't very effective. So I thought maybe there's a better way to do this. So what kind of stuff were they using? So what they use in, in many cases is called WHO Integrative Management of Childhood Illnesses. So it's kind of a 87-page booklet that guides people through decision-making algorithms and uh, subjective decision-making 
It's relatively complex. It's not that accurate based on how it's done and very difficult to train, very difficult to retain any information, and it wasn't really, didn't seem to be of high value. So whoever was available, they'd basically hand them this booklet and say... Carry around this owner's manual. Well, I mean, it is an owner's manual, but they, they, they do. There's a lot of effort to train these individuals, but it's very expensive. And you can just imagine you have this open booklet, and every time you're seeing patients, and there's 75, 100, 150 patients waiting for you, to go through this appropriately is really not acceptable. If only there were a better way to take paper and, and use it, I don't know, contemporary... Mm-hmm. Like what, well, what? What was the epiphany? I mean, the idea is well, you know, we're in the twenty. We're in the twenty-first century. Maybe we could utilize some technology. The other fascinating thing is, is that you know, globally, you look at socially acceptable um, entities, and you know, when you work or you're dealing with a very diverse group of economic, social, uh, geographic areas, the one there are a couple things that are universal which you have to take advantage of, and one of them is a cell phone. It's accepted everywhere in the world, and it's of high value. And a phone has amazing capabilities to it. And the idea is, why don't we try to utilize the phone appropriately? And at that point, there were some digitalizations of these type of you know, algorithms and clinical uh, information. But um, again, it was just kind of transferring that information into a digital form. It didn't really solve the major problem with it. Mm-hmm. And the idea was, well, why don't we develop better logic and better ways to do this in a more simplified way so people would want to use it and, uh, and bring value to them and the people they're trying to serve. So it's mobile phone-enabled clinical decision support information systems. Is that? Yeah, exactly. That, I, like, I used every big word I knew just then. <laughs> yeah, well, Did no, it sound good? Sound um, okay. I don't know why people say you're not trainable, David. That's, like, amazing. <laughs> Yeah, at some point, yes, I'm just beaten down, I guess. No, no. No, but it's exactly right. So you want to transform, let's say, evidence-based medicine onto a digital platform in a simple way so people could use it. And, um, you know, the the phone itself is a great example of it. You know, where is the learner's manual for a phone? This was the other thing I thought about. Two things. No matter how poor an area you work in or how remote or how isolated – People would do anything they could to buy a phone. It brought enormous value to them. And there's no learner's manual to it. So if we can bring healthcare in that way and bring value to them, then we think it would, I thought it could be then adapted. You know, that's the way to try to adapt it and try to. I think Twitter should have a learner's manual, don't you? But, um, you know, you, you sort of glossed over a little bit of the problem. What caught me early on in the years we've known each other is. It was something like 16,000, you know, kids under five die each day globally mm-hmm. of preventable um, illness. Mm-hmm. And it largely due to the disinformation or lack of information, lack of access at the end of the road or in these villages. And that was just such a noble BHAG, you know, big audacious goal to to solve. And then with the trend of cell phones and and you, you your co-founder, your team's experience in in, in medicine, um, weaving it all together. Um, sounds like it came together overnight. Um, probably not. Probably no. not. A couple yeah, nights. Probably yeah. not. I mean, yeah. as you shared with me the other day, the, our initial email correspondence when I was starting out. Um, no, I mean, I, I had no idea what I was doing. And so you had identified a goal or a, a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, you identified how you thought you could maybe solve it. 
How did you get started? What, who did you bring together to make this happen? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I started formulating what I thought should be built and how to build it, and I was designing it all. And there were a couple of things that happened. Um, I felt good about what I was doing and how I was designing it and building new logic and how it maybe could present presented. And then I went to one of my colleagues, Barry Heath, who's the co-founder of, of ThinkMD, uh, somebody I've worked with for a very long time, highly respect everything he does clinically, and know that he was going to give me a brutally honest answer. So I walked into his office. I said, I'm just going to present this problem to you. This is what I, this is a problem out there. This is what I think my solution is. Uh, and this is the way I want to do it. Does this make sense to you? And he reviewing these things over. And his initial comment was two things. One, yes. And two, I want to do it with you. It's the best so, case scenario right there. Yeah. So that was giving me some credence and back, you know, feedback that maybe I was on the right track. Awesome. I did dig up the September 2013 cold contact form email with typos. Yeah. I, professor at UVM, <laughs> am embarking on developing a new complex medical device and looking for guidance and, and things. Um, You're just a I, kid, Barry. It, it's the last sentence is, this is a new endeavor for me, which I just thought so tremendous uh, humility and, and yearning to learn and connect. So... Um, I knew you was going to be successful in 2013 based upon that that typographically errored email. So, congratulations. Well, you know, I was probably multitasking, and plus, I I don't think I passed English actually <coughs> in high school. So, you know, <laughs> multitasking. My you were my, running the ER room. My, my strengths were probably in some different areas, and my, my wife would be definitely uh, second that. Gotcha. <laughs> so, um, how many employees do you have, and how did your team come together? Uh, we currently have working about 10 full-time employees right now with some other part-time people working. Uh, how did it come together is another interesting thing because, as you know, I had no idea what I was doing. I was an academic pediatrician and research scientist because I didn't want to be a business person or didn't want to do anything else. And all of a sudden, I was sucked into developing, you know, forming a company and learning everything about that. Um, I was incredibly fortunate that when people started hearing, hearing what I was doing, reached out and said, how could I help? And uh, one of the early people was John Rosenblum, who came on. Uh, he was working as a consultant for UVM. They would told him he should talk to me. I met with him. And I remember that first meeting, he started going over, raising money and stuff, and angel investors. And, I, and he goes, you look kind of confused. I go, what does like an angel thing have to do with anything to do with what we're trying to do? And he goes, you don't know what an angel investor is. I go, I have no idea what an angel investor is. He goes, oh, so we're working at the bottom end of the knowledge scale here. And, you know, before I knew it, John was actually volunteering for us. And uh, everybody who actually started working for ThinkMD came on in a volunteer position initially. And eventually when we started to attract some funding, they were bring people on board. Which is pretty amazing, given your mission. It's also a great sign for the, the entrepreneur, right? Like, often the first sale you make is to your early teammates and co-founders. So mm -hmm. it doesn't pay the bills, but it, it, it definitely is an asset. Well, you got to know that you have something worth fighting for, right? When, when mm -hmm. these brilliant people around you are wanting to give their time to something. And that's, we don't see that too often. Um, no, it, was, it, was, it is and has always been amazing to me. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Really humbling. 
Um, so you mentioned clearly that you did not ever want to be an entrepreneur. That wasn't sort of uh, your number one goal here. Um, tell us a little bit about your background, maybe how you got into medicine in the first place. I got into medicine after actually I went to graduate school and got a PhD. And I, um, I always loved research, and that's why I did that. And I always still do love research. But there was a real interest in human health and human behavior and wanting something besides just the research world that I was involved with. And I did a lot of volunteer work during actually graduate school and made the decision um, towards the end of graduate school to go to medical school. And what did you get your PhD in? It was in microbiology. Still useful? Yes, I think it is still useful. It was actually not microbiology as you imagine it. It was actually molecular biology before that term was even coined. So you coined the term, I assume. I didn't personally coin it, no. (laughs) It was evolved. How many degrees do you have? Um, I've heard at least four. Enough to keep undergrad five. Enough to keep me in educational systems my entire career. This might be a record. No, no, I don't think for number degrees of a. We'll have to check that one. Do you want to have a record? It'd be nice. Not really. Okay. All right. All right. I love it. I love (laughs) it. Um, So you you still practice medicine? Well, I'm still yep. affiliated with the University of Vermont and the Department of Pediatrics. My clinical okay. duties are kind of slowing down as ThinkMD has been ramming okay, up. Okay, great. Um, how are you able to balance that for, for the number of years before it's been slowing down? Like, do you sleep? Yeah, yeah. No, I sleep. I, I'm not one of those people who stay up all night. But um, my entire career has been balancing a number of different careers. So even as all my academic career, it always involved being a clinician as well as a research scientist. So I was always balancing completely two different worlds. So, um, and you know, as a physician, you have to get skills and training of multitasking in many different ways anyway. And same for research, you have to be able to do that. So they're different worlds, but they do overlap in a lot of the skill sets I think you need, so. And you're able to separate those roles when you walk in the front door here at, at the Consolidated Communications Tech Hub, do you just sort of Check out? I think I check out some of the things, but some of the things you, I want to bring here. So I think it's probably both of those things. Yeah. So I, I do want to take a step back again and talk a little bit more about MedSync. Um, not only just how does it work, sort of where, where is it at now, and how many people are using this thing? So, I mean, the technology that we built is basically something that transforms how a doctor thinks. Uh, to do a clinical exam. So just think about it. It's supposed to replicate uh, the way you do in a clinical assessment of a patient who may be sick, and um, but that, something that anybody can use. Like, you don't need to go to medical school or anything. So the way it works is relatively straightforward in a sense. When a doctor walks in the room, they gather data. That's what they're doing. They're acquiring data on your past history, your current history maybe. They want to do understand your vital signs, they want to understand your physical examination features, all these things take into account how you, you examine a patient. And those data points are gathered and the doctor thinks about how those data points are different compared to normal and how abnormal they may be. So they weigh them all differently. And then they kind of take all these different data points and use them to make clinical assessments. Like they'll determine what is this patient's risk of an infection or how dehydrated may they be or do they have respiratory distress? And all those data points overlap, and some are unique. And so that's the kind of way we built the logic. And how did you, you know, figure out that was going to work for someone that didn't have medical training? Did you do a lot of testing? Yep. So 
probably should step back on how we built it, yeah. which is kind of a unique story. John Rosenblum, who I mentioned, introduced me to somebody called John Canning, who many people may know in the Burlington area, who is the founder of a Physicians Computing Company. And um, I had a lunch with John, who, if anybody knows him, is a unique... He's unforgettable. Unforgettable, unique, amazing guy. And uh, we started talking. He, he built a pediatric-specific EHR company. And he was very interested, and he goes, I love this project. He goes, what do you need? And I said, well, I know nothing about business. I know nothing about coding. I have no money. Um, besides that, everything's good. Uh, but I do know <laughs> what I want to build, and I think I know how to do it. And he goes, well, I'll build it for you. And uh, I said, I don't understand that. He goes, I'll work with you on it. I'll build it for you. And then we, so we spent a good amount of time doing that. Uh, he was uh, translating what I wrote down in design, and he was coding it up. And I'll tell you, it was really Im impressive um, because he said, well, tell me how it has the features. And I told him, well, it has to be able to work in any phone, has to be worked on and offline, anywhere in the world. And it has to be really simple. And I have to take all my logic and transform it into a simple way. And he goes, well, that sounds interesting. A lot of those things don't exist yet, <laughs> you know. And so let me see what I can do. And he figured out how to do one of the first web-enabled on-offline type of applications are. And uh, then we spent two years testing it in five different countries with international aid partners and we're able to demonstrate that clinical assessments that were done by unskilled users correlated fairly highly with a physician seeing the same patients. So that gave us proof that maybe we're on the right track with this. This is why I love Vermont that someone like John Canning not only is within a few miles of you, but it wants to help and want, you know can't help but take this on because he's so passionate about that. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's amazing. It is amazing. And it appears as though everybody you've met by the name of John has volunteered to help. Is that correct? John and Barry and Nick. <laughs> yeah, it's been, yeah. Um, what, what sort of customer, can you share any customer or in the field stories about how it's being used? Yeah, so it's currently being used in, in about nine countries now. Uh, we have uh, probably well over maybe 500 active users from a community healthcare worker standpoint. It's being used in a variety of different geographic areas, everywhere from an inner slum in Dhaka, Bangladesh, to uh, a settlement in Nairobi. It's used in a school system in, in Lusaka, Zambia, and, and everywhere in between. It's also being used by American Refugee Committee in Somalia and Sudan. And... We're really proud of the fact that it's also being used by a number of different end users, not just community healthcare workers like I talked about earlier, but it's being used by nurses and doctors and pharmacists and school teachers and, and frontline health workers. And we also built a direct-to-consumer product that is being launched in South Africa. Amazing. And how do you know that it's working? What kind of data do you have that shows that, yeah, this thing is actually doing it? Well, we obviously get a lot of feedback from all our customers on, on how they feel it's going and how it's working and how satisfied they are. We're really excited about all our usability, acceptability data. We also review all the clinical data coming in on, on its prevalence data to make sure that, it's, that we're not seeing type of spikes in certain diseases and stuff that, that we wouldn't expect to see. And we, it goes under you know, pretty continuous clinical logic you know, assessments with our users as well as internally. It, it's a challenge because this hasn't really been done like this before in this way. So, Yeah, it's a massive amount of data. Yeah. Um, do you have any sort of like one-off sort of cases that have been really inspiring? 
Well, I think that, um, you know, we hear things all the time. I think in a sense, a typical case would be when we started training and doing work in Zambia with the school teachers. So these are school teachers who were screened and then they were, they were, they were uh, um, trained to use our technology. And, um, you know, we had to build a whole new clinical platform for that particular project because it was children from 5 to 15 years of age and that hadn't been done yet. And one of the diseases you always want to screen for is mumps in that area. It's something that's common. Uh, they are not as common here because of immunizations. And, you know, one of the school teachers kept on coming and while they were doing it in the field. They got an assessment of mumps. And then when the child went to the physician, to, to, they referred them and said, yeah, it really was mumps. And, you know, you just see that type of correlations. And, you know, we hear those type of things. So empowering. Mm-hmm. So how have, you, how have you financed the company over the last almost seven years now, um, you know, got grants and partnerships, outside investments, sweat equity. What, what's sort of the big story around that path? Um, I think like any startup, we, uh, we've worked really hard to acquire investments at every different level. Obviously, family and friends, a typical thing initially. We were able to then start a convertible debt rounds, which we did. Uh, we went through a series of those, um, three major series of convertible debt rounds, and the uh, last one closed at the end of this year, uh, last year, obviously, and then um, we're currently looking at a new round, series, uh, an equity round now at this point, closing at this point, which yeah, is really exciting. Which is really exciting. And we, you know, we've been able to get granting um, at a diff- variety of different levels um, as well, which is, always helps. Listen to that lingo from someone who didn't know what an Seriously, angel investor right? was. The newbie's gone, right? <laughs> What's well, an angel? That's Amazing. right. Um, given the countries that you're working in, sort of the structure of government, ministries, World Health Organizations, like how do you get there from Burlington, Vermont? Do, do you have to go through a, a larger partner or can you go direct? Um. The way you get there is through an enormous amount of work, you know, networking. Um, I I think any entrepreneur networking is key. When you do it on a global scale and very complex health systems and economic systems, it's really challenging. So um, we work hard in getting partners that work in these areas. They usually have all have strong relationship with the Ministry of Health. You have to find internal champions that believe in what you want to do and are willing to take a risk in your technology. And then you have to work really hard to, you know, facilitate those relationships and and get buy-in for what you're doing and and getting on the ground. We feel really confident that once our technology is on the ground, they'll be happy with it. And so far, that's been the case, and it's proved to be valuable. So it's really not simple. It's like, you know, I think what is the term, getting a good idea is easy, executing is everything. Yeah, that's very true in our world, that's for sure. So would you say that like those key partnerships are how you've been able to scale and how you'll continue to scale? Yeah, I think that's the only way to do it. You know, we're dependent on finding those early adopter champion uh, entities wherever we work. It's a health technology is complicated to implement. There's a lot of hesitancy on new technology. Uh, Everybody wants to continue the same thing, even if it's not bringing value to them. So a lot of hurdles to overcome. And one thing that I I talk to entrepreneurs about all the time is, you know, getting an MVP together and then where do you stop? Where do you know when to say, okay, this is good enough to get in the hands of users? And, you know, how does that sort of evolve as the company grows? 
I mean, it's a super challenging question for us because we're dealing with healthcare. It's healthcare, right? Yeah. It's healthcare, and it's really complicated. And you have to be able to balance, you know, risk versus reward. You know, we're working in areas where the where the problems are very, very high. It doesn't mean you want to put technology out there; it's going to cause problems. You don't want to do it. But eventually, you have to put the technology out there and see if it's going to be of value and how it works and monitor really closely. We never see, from my standpoint, we are one continuous MVP. You know, we have to continually look at the logic, continue to look at what we're doing, test it, um, and to make sure we, we're improving everything we do all the time. So, so we're big believers in uh, mentors and mentoring um, for entrepreneurs and you know, we've got about over 130 people that we call upon for little conversations and whatnot. Is there any one or two folks that have stood out for you in this journey so far from our community that have really just, whether it was five minutes or five years? like? Well, I, I mentioned a number of them already. Yeah. I mean, from for me, being absolutely, totally ignorant about what I was doing and how I was going about, everybody I met was of value. You know, I went through Launch VT a long time ago. Yep. And, you know, everybody seemed to be a little bit bored at the time. I'm going, I don't know any of this stuff. All this is new to me. Pitching, five-minute pitches, 10-second pitches, elevated pitch. You know, pitching, you know, I remember talking with you initially. Those slides are not going to work, Barry. That's <laughs> the, probably the worst slide deck I've ever seen. You know, it needs to be three slides, dumbed down, and two minutes. You know, I'm going. All that. So I can't remember anybody who I haven't mentioned, to be honest with you, in the business world or the, or the, or the clinical world. Or, Do you think that's a, an advantage for, for us up here in Vermont? I mean, that people are willing to build stuff for free or to offer their time? Or is that true in other locations as well? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, um, you know, I came to Vermont and I stayed here for a lot of reasons. You know, the people... In my other career as a research scientist, people go, go into Vermont, it's going to be death for you for research. And I go, you know, I think there's such unique things here that we can do. You know, we could study population-based work and all the other research that I did. I think in the innovation space, I think it's great that we're not in Boston or San Francisco. Are there resources there that could be of value? Absolutely. But the environment here and the attitude has sprung you know, amazing companies for, for an, a, a community like ours. And I think it's, you know, we may not have been able to be as successful as we are if we weren't here, to be honest with you. Is there, speaking of which, are there, is there another Vermont company that you're, you know, that you really admire that really gets you psyched? I mean, personally, I don't want to, like, get boxed in there. <laughs> I, I think anybody who has success building a new company has my respect. It's like... Oh, come on. Give us a name. No, I'm not. That's a cool... I'm we want to see, it. like, no, if I'm we not. ask the cool kids where the other cool kids are at, then we become better. You know, I don't have many friends. I want to keep the few that I have. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I, I've not known to be so diplomatic, Sam. This is... I'm trying to be. I, this I is, like this it. This is great. All right, let's talk about um, mistakes that you may have made that you've really learned from that the next founder out there can avoid? Any, any big ones? I think the thing that... Um, Tissues are right here. No, no, no. The big mistakes. I think you just have to learn from your experiences. I mean, I think, you know, I, the, the difference between me and maybe somebody else, it's, it's not, 
even though I'm new at this, it's not my first rodeo doing new things. And um, uh, I think you have to, first of all, you have to embellish and not be fearful of failure. You just have to be able to not worry about that in any case. And I always push myself to, to not worry about failing at something as long as you learn from it. And I think that's probably the biggest thing um, that I always work on and others can do it. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, there's a lot of different ways to deal with all the different aspects you're doing, but let's say with investors, and there's a lot of different ways to approach investors. Um, you and I have had a lot of these conversations before, and it, I think a lot now is being written about investors and venture capital investors and how startup people look at them. And, and I think, you know, you have to realize the investor isn't a key for you to be successful, but you have to have a, you're not, it's not only one off here. You're part of this conversation. And I think initially I was a little bit more apprehensive about that, but I've, I've built up to think that this is a two-way conversation here. It needs to be. It needs to be alignment. Like you've yeah. had some investment from um, social impact, social mm -hmm. uh, responsibility-minded uh, funds, some angels, yeah. some folks had said, gosh, my mom would be proud if I made this investment sort of exactly. conversations. And I think that's really and, and getting special. Back to, I mean, getting back to your other question, I think you know there are a couple of significant investments that um, – that I decided to turn down at times when we really needed the funding because I thought if, if we survive, this is not going to be good for us. Hmm. And you have to, I think you have to be able to do that. I don't know if everybody thinks that, but for me, it was important. Definitely. I, you know, I think one of the things that has been really impressive to me and, you know, since I've started at Visa, I think MD has been a fixture of, of it. So little turnover, you know, that you've had the same folks um, and just been slowly sort of intentionally building your team. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the culture you've built with this product and the people that are behind it? Because it's a pretty kick-ass team. Um, yes, I, I would totally agree with that. I mean, we have amazing people working there. And uh, again, uh, I can't thank them enough and be appreciative of all the work that they do and everything they bring to the company. Um, I think part of it is that, uh, you know, my philosophy came from when I was in graduate school, a how-to work environment. <clears throat> I, I worked for a very unique um, scientist who uh, in those days was very unique. He, he tried to hire really good people, and he let them go into the environment and find what their passion was in there and work on that research project. He didn't try to say you need to work on X type of research project. And then he worked hard in providing environment to those people to succeed. And that's what, you know, we want to do here. I mean, these are really good, amazingly smart, hardworking people. They don't need to be, uh, you know, they, they need to be supportive and know what the mission is and help them do what they want to do and then get out of the way and let them do their thing. And, uh, you know, we want to provide an environment that the people want to work in or passionate about the problem and feel they're treated well. So... Well, I mean, it's kind of what it's we working. For. Seems to be working. <laughs> so, you get any new big news uh, coming up that you'll be announcing? Nothing that's official, but we're working on a lot of different things. I mean, it's hard to say about certain new things that uh, we're working on. I mean, I think a recent thing that's that's great. We have an, a, kind of a a new and expanding um, positive relationship with the Gates Foundation, which is something that happened to end of last year. We're working oh, on oh, that one, the yeah. Gates Foundation, yeah, yeah which okay. is great. Boom, um, I've heard of it. I believe yeah. Yeah. that's great. And so it's a great, uh, it's great to be involved with some of their projects and to get some support for that and 
helping us augment some of our technology to improve its capabilities, you know, in, in low and middle income countries. And there's a lot of interesting things that we're excited about. We're very excited about, you know, this direct-to-consumer opportunity we have with mobile network operators globally. Uh, total new horizon in, in this world for a lot of reasons, and, and we're excited to see where that goes as well. So 2020 so far, we've got some Gates Foundation work that's exciting. Uh, a priced equity round yeah. coming um, after a few years of notes. Uh, telecommunications partners to go direct to consumer. Um, your 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 ebulence is, is noted, Barry. Just how exciting it is. Um, mm -hmm. But it's really awesome um, well, to you. to be at that point. And it's funny. It does take about six or seven years, um, on average, for companies to really hit that stride with, with meaningful revenues, with a team that is not in search mode, but they're in execution mode. Mm -hmm. um, and the world really does take notice. So no, thanks. This, this should be a, a great year. And I didn't, uh, this is not a, a self-serving plug, but I can tell you, as you know, we've been involved with Visa for a long time. And it, this has been, you know, having this environment for me has been, and everybody here has been actually amazing. Um, you know, when people say, are you really excited about this new venture, even though you don't want to go into business? And I go, that is true because of the energy that's involved with people who are entrepreneurs. You know, when you're a physician or an academic researcher, you don't, you see different type of enthusiasm. But here, I love it because everybody here, no matter what age they are, what skill sets they have, they don't have a fear of failure here. There's a lot of failure that goes on and people are doing what they like to do, no matter what it is. And it's a great environment that you guys help support. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's hey, it's there's 190 folks that are members in our two facilities yeah. now, and it's it's a joy and it's daunting. And everybody, some days everybody's up, other you know other days are low, and and tonally it, it yeah. seems positive and and future forward. Yeah, so. thanks for being our poster child company. Appreciate <laughs> it. Know about that, but we're happy. It, it took a while. It took a while to get to this status. So um, yeah. yeah, you and I, we've known each other a long time, Barry. So yeah. I think. Uh, I I, uh, I was younger then, so. Makes two of us. Hey, Sam, we're getting close to yeah. final time. It's the big one. Barry, if you could change one thing about Vermont today, what would it be? Oh, With a magic wand, magic wand, to be clear. Any area of Vermont? Anything. It's your question. Well. Take a risk. No, that's, this is way too much pressure for me. I, um... I think it would be great for other people to see what an amazing place this is. Not live here, but just come here. <laughs> Not live here. <laughs> Support it. But no, it's, Vermont is amazing. And I think, uh, you know, it's got, it's good and bad like any other place. But uh, overall, it's been a phenomenal place to be and work and live. Get some more folks to I like that come one. visit. Yeah. We do need a few more people, though. A few more people. Yeah. It would be nice to get some and. More investors would be kind of in, in Vermont. <laughs> well, that's a function of people. I mean, there's exactly. 1,500 households that earn more than $300,000 a year in Vermont. That's mm. the pool, which would typically be an angel investor right. size. And that's spread over 6.6 .6 million acres and a couple thousand startups. So it's pretty pretty thin, but you've risen and earned uh, visibility. It, it totally is possible. definitely possible. Um, thank you, Barry. That was a good answer, the magic wand. 
This has been Start Here with Sam and Dave, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. This series has been made possible by the Vermont Technology Council, Consolidated Communications. Follow us on Twitter at VSET, that's V-C-E-T. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to work.